0: Hello, I'm Mel, and I'm Steph, and this is East Asia for All, a podcast
1: about the East Asian pop culture and media that you love. We're both working on our PhDs in Chinese history, but we also study and teach about East Asia in general. If you're listening right now, you, like us, probably also have an addiction to East Asian pop culture and media. Between the two of us, we've lived on and off in China, Taiwan, and Japan
0: since 2007, So we're taking our love for East Asia, our experiences there, and the knowledge we've gained in the ivory tower, and making it available beyond our classroom
1: walls. In today's episode, we're discussing a historical period in recent Chinese history that's still pretty contentious, the Cultural Revolution. This is a
0: period in China from 1966 to 1976. It was marked by political struggles in the upper echelons of the Chinese Communist Party, as well as political struggle at the grassroots. It is often characterized as a violent uprising in which the youth were manipulated by Chairman Mao to help him grasp at power before his death in
1: 1976. But, as historians are fond of saying, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yes. The Cultural Revolution can
0: be very tough to talk about, but the film we chose, Balzac and the Little Chinese Seamstress raises some thoughtful reflections on the rural-urban divide and certainly gave
1: us some insight into the daily lives of sent-down youth. On a quick historical note, we should also say that this film takes place during the late 60s and 70s down to the countryside campaign, which sent urban youth, and particularly educated youth who had graduated middle or high school, out to rural villages to learn about agriculture, industry, and of course, politics. Right. And they're called sent-down
0: youth because they were sent down into the villages.
1: Now, the film is based off of the memoir by Dai Sijie, a Chinese-French writer and filmmaker who spent his teenage years as a sent-down youth during the later years of the Cultural Revolution. So to give a rundown of the basic plot... And lots of spoilers.
0: Yeah, if you want to watch the movie without spoilers, you'll need to stop now and continue once you've watched it. So in the novel and the movie... Dai recounts being sent to a small village in rural Sichuan province, very close to the Tibetan border, with his close friend Luo to learn from the peasants. Their primary jobs were to carry fertilizer to the fields and work in the coal mines.
1: While there, they befriend the local tailor's daughter, whom Dai calls throughout the novel the Little Seamstress. To impress her and occupy their own time, they read her forbidden Western novels. And although both boys are infatuated with her, Luo and the Little Seamstress become a couple. And later, while Luo is on leave tending
0: to his sick mother in their home city of Chengdu, the little seamstress discovers that she's pregnant. The narrator then uses his connections through his father, who's a famous
1: doctor, to find a gynecologist to perform an abortion. Sometime after this, Lowell returns to the village, still without knowing that the little seamstress was pregnant or had an abortion. He's then shocked when the little seamstress strikes out on her own, despite her father's, laws and the narrator's pleas for her to stay in the village. And she says that it was the words of the French novelist Balzac which compelled her to leave.
0: Many years later, the narrator, who had since emigrated to France, returns
1: to the village to find her, but she's already been gone many years. We're joined today on the podcast by Dr. Emily Honig and Dr. Chris Connery, who have both researched and taught about the Cultural Revolution extensively throughout their careers. Hope you enjoy the conversation.
0: Today, we are really lucky. We are going to interview two different people to help us talk about the Cultural Revolution. So I would like to introduce Professors Emily Honig and Chris Connery.
2: Emily, if you could introduce yourself. Sure. Sure. My name's Emily Honig. I'm a professor of history at, here at UC Santa Cruz, and the research that I've done has all focused on modern China, 20th century uh, primarily, and the research I've been working on most recently has focused on issues of gender and sexuality during the Cultural revolution, and I'm currently co-authoring a book with a friend of mine from China who now lives in the U.S. and teaches Asian American Studies at UC Santa Barbara were finishing, hopefully, a book about the sent-down youth movement that took place um, in conjunction with the Cultural Revolution. Great. Very excited to talk about that. Chris?
3: Yeah, I'm Chris Connery. I teach literature and cultural studies here at UC Santa Cruz, and I've gone through different phases of research, including one on the global 1960s, a kind of theoretical and meta-historical treatment, a few articles on that. And among those, I treat the culture revolution, write about the culture revolution. And I'm currently on uh, some other projects, but I always think about the culture revolution.
1: Wonderful. We're so excited to have both of you here. Um, and when we were preparing for this, Mel and I were um, kind of talking a little bit. We, we both know a little bit about both of your backgrounds. And we were wondering when the first time was that you were, were in China. If either of you want to talk about that, you know, if you were there during or or close to this, the Cultural Revolution period, and, you know, if so, what you could tell us kind of about that
2: particular moment being there. Sure. Well, the very first time I went to China was in 1974. At that time, I was a finishing my junior year in college. I really knew nothing about China, and so depending on how one defines the temporality of the cultural revolution one would say that that was the tail end of the cultural revolution if you think of it as going from 1966 to 76 1974 there was a particular piece of the cultural revolution taking place the campaign to criticize lin biao and confucius and you know as somebody who was idealistic and knew very little about china it was hard not to be completely captivated by what appeared to be the just profound sincerity of people who husbands and wives at factories who would sit down and talk about the division of labor in their household, uh, because that was something that they were engaged in talking about in the context of criticizing Confucian thinking. But let's leap ahead. I, that was a three week trip. And so there's only so much you can learn and see, especially if you don't speak Chinese. I then went back to China in 1979. So the Cultural Revolution had ended in 1976. That was three years after. It was kind of a little bit before the economic reforms really got underway. But there were ways in which the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution or the Cultural Revolution was still kind of infiltrated life in so many different ways. So in particular, it was a time when people were passionately engaged in actually denouncing the Cultural Revolution. So do, would you like an example? That would be fantastic. Okay. I would
1: love to hear about passionately <laughs> engaging and denouncing anything. So,
2: <laughs> Well, so for example, I lived in a dormitory for foreign students, and it was not built to accommodate the number of little hot plates that foreign <laughs> students used not to cook with but to compensate for the fact that there was no heat because if you're south of the Yangtze River you don't get heat in the winter. Wait, how they were, were Go ahead. They were using it to heat Yeah, this? how does that? Can H- you <laughs> talk You about put the little hot that? you plug in the hot plate, put it in the middle of your room and huddle around it. So, you know, there were many burnt safe. Um, burnt pieces of clothing and <laughs> all sorts of burnt items from those hot plates. But the biggest problem was that the building wasn't wired to accommodate all of that electricity. And so one day a fire broke out. Well, it, there had been a smell of smoke for a number of days before that, but nobody put two and two together and then all of a sudden in the middle of the night one night we're all woken up because the building is on fire and it was so we're all hurled outside and you know we go outside at the fire it took a long time for the fire department to decide that they We're going to wake up and come and deal with this. They were busy throwing buckets of water at what was an electric fire, which isn't the right thing to do. But in any (laughs) event, this fire, they put it out. We all went back to sleep. It then erupted again an hour later. So then there were and there were Chinese students who lived in the dorms with us. So then there was a meeting afterwards where the so-called leadership met with all of us who lived there, including both the foreign students and the Chinese students, people those among us, we were really angry that this had happened and how it was handled. And the leadership, the main thing that they said was the reason for this fire and the reason for the way it was handled, this is a result of the chaos of the Cultural Revolution. Most of the Chinese students were even more enraged that that was the kind of answer there. But at that moment, anything and everything could be attributed to the chaos. Of the Cultural Revolution. So that was a very palpable moment. You know, the other thing I could say about that period is that because during the Cultural Revolution, people were criticized, if not punished, for contact with foreigners, so that meant that there was still a lingering concern, in some cases, fear about how much interaction it was appropriate to have with foreigners. And so For example, if my roommate or one of my Chinese friends wanted to invite me to their family's home, it was a very elaborate procedure. They had to go to the Public Security Bureau in their neighborhood, fill out forms, get permission. The family had to be briefed on what it was appropriate to say, what it wasn't appropriate to say. I'm not saying that those instructions necessarily dictated how people behaved when I'd go to their house. But nonetheless, it was, there was a lot of concern about people, understandably, were nervous. And when I first, I was at the time trying to do research on a history of women factory workers in Shanghai and had this idea that I could do a lot of oral history interviews with old retired workers from who worked in factories in the 1930s and 1940s. And that meant that the university had to get in touch with the bureau that was responsible for the factories and get permission for me to go and do interviews. It took approximately eight months before my first interview could take place. And once I did one interview, of course, they assumed that was going to suffice but <laughs> I think the issue really was and I'd constantly be told well they can't do another interview because they are repair renovating their guest, you know their visiting room for foreigners Zai and, Zai and, <laughs> yeah. and so the classic excuse but, you know really when I thought about it the issue was that what does a factory have to get out of allowing a foreigner to come and do interviews with workers they have nothing to gain from that and potentially something to lose. Because what if, what if somebody decided that this wasn't appropriate? It's really different doing research in China now. But at that time in 1979, 1980, the after effects of the Cultural revolution's um, concern about contact with foreigners was just very much palpable.
1: Wow. That was a really illuminating set of experiences. Did any apartments catch on fire while you were in China for the first time, Chris?
3: Well, when I I went to China, kind of coincidentally, in the next wave of the anti-Confucius, anti-Lin Biao campaign that Emily just spoke of, and that was in 1976, and I went for six weeks with a socialist uh, group of teachers, students, and workers, and I, I spoke and read Chinese at that time, so when we toured around the country, you know, this was a kind of hot time. What what I learned many years later was going on was this had been in part coordinated with the reaction in Beijing to the reemergence of Deng Xiaoping, whom Mao had invited back to power uh, earlier that year. I mean earlier the year before in '75, and I was really struck by the big character posters and. You know, if this were not a family-oriented broadcast, I would quote you some of the things that I read on the, on the <laughs> big character. Can you char-
0: explain really quickly for our listeners what big character posters are? I mean, it's a little self-explanatory. Big but- character
3: posters are, I would say, public media, some of them quite long, some of them several thousand words long. And these would be political positions, denunciations, descriptions of incidents, political philosophy of different kinds. Quotations from things from the center, then put into a local context. And it was at the Wuhan steel mill where I spent the most time with the big character posters. And there was a campaign against a particular factory leader that was really pretty, pretty out there, pretty vehement. And I just thought that workplace politics, you know, to take such a hot form and to take such an intense form. That was, that was an interesting thing for me to see. And I saw that kind of thing all over the country and it was really interesting to me and I subsequently had a hard time believing that all of this stuff was manipulated by the center because it really did have a, a very local and uh, specific feel in each workplace. And that's when I got interested in the Cultural Revolution uh, in, a, in a big way. I next went to China in 1981, and I I, never—at that time, my research was on imperial China, early imperial China. So unlike Emily, I didn't have a real scholarly connection to contemporary or near-contemporary events in China, though I paid attention to it. And I was really curious uh, in—I spent several months there in 1981, traveling around only, and I wanted to hear about the Cultural Revolution, but I learned that if one asked— so what about the Cultural Revolution? What did you do in the Cultural Revolution? Um, it was the same thing that Emily just said. I mean, the answer was always a kind of fairly formulaic, um, oh, the, it was chaos, it was awful, et cetera. So I, I learned in order to get a nuanced answer, in order to just get you know, not a canned response, I learned to ask about the what they call the great link-up, the Da Quanlian. And I would say to people, so well, what did you do on the Da Chuan And that was a time when young people all over the country, it was a time very early in the Cultural Revolution, uh, 66, 67, maybe a bit into 68, where the youth were given free transportation, free train, bus transportation, many of them walked, and then free accommodation and board all over the country. And the youth were encouraged to travel all over the country and exchange and learn revolutionary experience. And it was a kind of vast on the road. And people, many people remembered it as the best time of their lives. And so I I collected and heard lots of stories about that. It still is a kind of under-researched element of the Cultural Revolution, under-researched part of the Cultural Revolution. But it was for me a way to kind of hear about Other sides than the kind of official line of denunciation. And then in recent years, in the last, I would say, uh, seven years, I've been involved in, I would say, contemporary leftist intellectual debates in China, inside the left and um, among cultural and academic leftists where the Cultural Revolution is a topic and it's a matter of contention and the interpretations of the cultural Revolution are an issue and that remains that's an ongoing somewhat delicate matter in China because the you know what can be said and can't be said about it changes rapidly and is circumscribed in different ways
0: I feel like we've already gotten a very nuanced picture of the cultural Revolution and its after effects without even talking about the film yet
1: <laughs> so This is great. I feel like this might be a really good point you know We really wanted to do an episode on the Cultural Revolution in part because the Cultural Revolution is so difficult to talk about. You know, we chose this film, Balzac and the Little Chinese Seamstress, which is a film about the experiences of, you know, these two sent down youth and and in particular their relationship with a a rural um, peasant girl because it explored Some of these questions about the Cultural Revolution and and its legacy in this this really complex way, you know, dealt with like complex emotional and political relationships between these different groups. And it was also kind of a beautiful and poignant film, we thought.
0: And there were some parts that we didn't like that we can also talk about, Um, in particular, when we were watching, we were both commenting on sort of the way that peasants are portrayed and in particular the way most of the peasant women roles for women characters in the movie um, we weren't thrilled with um, but we did really like how it explored the complexity of the culture evolution so what did you all think of the film were we going to have an argument over this or no
3: <laughs> i don't know <laughs>
0: <laughs> emily what did you think of the
2: film this is the, you, this is the first time you'd seen it recently correct correct yeah in fact it's the first time i ever saw it i read the book a long long time ago and then hadn't seen the film. I thought there were parts of the film I liked I liked very much. I agree with you that the way in which peasants were portrayed seemed unfortunate in a way. Even the the so called chief who was belligerent, nasty, angry, attacking, accusatory toward the sent down youth, that didn't strike me as it just didn't strike me as something that would have happened necessarily, or it could have happened, but it seemed to emphasize that f- would fuel certain stereotypes people have of what happened during the Cultural Revolution. And I do think that probably more often and not, that didn't happen. So I thought about the... And that happened when these two young men arrived from Beijing and um, into this mountain village. And there was a whole kerfuffle about the violin and a lot of screaming and yelling. And, you know, one of the comments that the two of you made was, I can't remember if it was in the movie or in the book, where it referred to the fact that the village could only afford to Sent Down Youth.
1: I think it was it the movie or the book? I can't remember. I think it was the book. It was the book. Yeah. It was this this one line throwaway, this tiny village could only afford that was the exact language to Sent Down Youth. And we were really curious about that.
2: Yeah. So I yeah, I didn't I hadn't picked that up in the movie, but it relates to what I was saying about the way in which the locals received the arrival of Sent Down Youth. Because instead of that kind of anger, political accusation, et cetera, it seemed like more often from everything I've read, from all the archival materials I've looked at, it seemed more often than not, village leaders were confused, felt burdened by the arrival of tens, hundreds, sometimes a thousand urban youth. Adolescents who had no experience with physical labor, had no knowledge of how to do agricultural work, and were too weak to do that kind of work, which you do kind of see at the beginning of the film where. And with four eyes, yeah, with the. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) carrying the. You know, and so most of the villages to which people were sent, urban kids were sent, were very, very poor. They were very remote. They were very poor. And on top of trying to sustain their own livelihoods. Now they're supposed to be responsible with some small compensation, not enough to to actually cover the costs of housing, feeding, and putting to work these urban teenagers. So a lot of village leaders complained, not to the sent down youth, they complained to higher ups about the impossibility of taking on this task. And So And over time, actually, over, you know, by the second half of that movement in the 70s, local leaders were encouraging people to leave, not by saying, please leave, but rather by saying, this one, this one's sick, that one has family difficulties, this one, here, we're giving you papers to go back to the city and telling, sending directives to the city saying, we have approved the departure of these people, please take them.
1: And that's really different from, I mean, and it it may have been, you know, kind of a a time period kind of thing. But in in the film and in the book, they talk about how slim their chances are of ever returning home. They really, there's three and
0: I think a thousand.
1: Yeah, yeah. That was the exact number that they kept quoting. And you can kind of see this. And obviously the film is, the, you know, the protagonist. It is from their perspective, their particular like urban intellectual perspective. But yeah, they kind of reveal themselves in this it's, it's a very self-pitiful way of, of talking about their chances of being able to return home without really reflecting on the lives, I think, of the rural peasants.
2: So I would say that in most of the writing about the sent-down youth movement, and there has been quite a lot, and there have been hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of memoirs that former sent-down youth have written about their experiences, but the voices that we have access to, the voices that are always heard are those of the sent down youth themselves the perspective of the countryside is so missing and so even in the united states people oftentimes will talk about those poor people they were that, that the lost generation they were victims they you know it was terrible for them they didn't get to go to college whether that's true or not true the fact is that that's, they are the victims. The peasants, to what extent maybe they were victimized, too, we don't get to hear about. And there certainly are ways in which peasants were victimized at various moments during, um, during this movement. But that's not part of the story that gets told or certainly not in academic writing, not in popular writing, and certainly not in films. What did you think of the film, Chris?
3: Well, uh the film has a narrative that that sort of a, a type of narrative that came up in the 1980s in China and then in writings outside of China about uh that experience about the cultural revolution period which is sort of the the kind of saving power of humanism you know in this case represented by kind of the universal humanism of of the great french writers I it was kind of interesting to me that you know, the film talks about Balzac and Flaubert, which I think if, if you really read them, you don't even have to read them particularly carefully to sort of really grasp their unromantic dimension and the kind of cold eye that it casts on this romantic life. So I think it was sort of interesting that she felt, and the, the, the female character in the film felt inspired, emboldened, and sort of catalyzed into a life-change reading Balzac when, you know, that would sort of give you a fairly bleak idea of, uh, <laughs> of what romance was, you know, if you were paying attention to it. But, I mean, the sort of, so, so this, this narrative, you know, which plays, of course, very well to Western audiences. This was a French-Chinese co-production. The author was at that point living in French. The novel was written in French. It was allowed to be filmed in China, and I think it was filmed in, in these sort of hyper-scenic places that was a kind of tendency in China in the late 90s and the early zeroes, you know, to sort of present a kind of scenic China, travelogue style China on film that corresponded in certain ways to the sort of universal romantic tone of this transformation of character from ignorant peasant to worldly romantic uh, young woman. So, you know, that to me, I, I, I think we've had a bit of bit enough of that kind of thing in life and the sort of redemptive character of the western humanities i think is a is you know a, a tired story i think that the what, what emily was saying about the the sort of cruelty and oppressiveness of the the party leader really struck me as inaccurate the descriptions i've read of sent down youth experiences kind of accord with emily's and if anything peasant Attitudes towards educated people are really respectful, and, and, and in most cases, overly respectful. So the scene of kind of making fun of, you know, civilized accomplishments, books, etc. That that I found unimaginable, based on what I've read and people I've talked to. So I think it was it was sort of you know there were some distortions that accentuated the. You know, the only source of redemption and beauty and truth and light was the kind of literary high culture scene. And I think we've been through enough history to know that, you know, that hasn't worked out all that well and uh, not, not <laughs> that not that accurately either. So I think, you know, when I think about the culture Revolution, I think it's really important to kind of – there are a number of scholars who – not a majority, but a small number of scholars who really draw a, a distinction between a kind of early and later phase of the Cultural Revolution, a kind of uncontrolled, more or less bottom up, extra party organization dominated phase, and then a more party dominated and state dominated phase.
1: Could you give us the timeline for, for so, that? You know, so
3: roughly in um, in this periodization by by winter spring of 1967 the spontaneous dimension of the thing is transformed into a a more statist thing and and I, I think as as sort of the numbers and the figures come in about the cultural revolution i think we're getting the picture that the violence that is is associated with the cultural revolution uh, a preponderance of that violence was was top down violence in other words was was state suppression of Various groups and and it wasn't sort of the, you know, the wild, uncontrolled Red Guard masses. I mean, there was they, they were violent, too. I'm not trying to whitewash that scene. But if you add up, add up the bodies, do the body count. It's it's the other way,
1: right? And this is really, I think it kind of comes back to this point, you know, with talking about, okay, so like Emily said, where are the stories coming from? Where are these narratives coming from? That especially, you know, readers in in the West or outside of China are, are getting their information about the Cultural Revolution. So that's one body of work. And then this narrative too that Chris is talking about, I think the classic idea is Mao the puppeteer, right? And the state controlling everything from the very beginning. And this is kind of the classic way that we think about it and violence against particularly the intellectual class. And that's the kind of way that a lot of, you know, readers in the West um, will will think about the Cultural revolution. And I'm just wondering if we can Talk about that a little bit, in particular, if either of you have received any pushback in your own research about thinking about the cultural revolution and and talking about it, and that kind of gets at why it is so difficult to talk about and and maybe talk about you know the violence that's associated with that and why
2: that presents such a problem. I could talk about it in a very specific way, and Chris probably could elaborate in. A broader context I would guess but I mean the specific way I could talk about it is that in writing about the sent-down youth movement the experience that my co-author and I have had is that if we fail to say that sent-down youth were basically victims and that what happened was terrible we get a lot of not just pushback but in some cases very negative reviews of things that we've written. So to give you a concrete example, we wrote an article that was focusing on one of the things that was most, that just stood out to us in all the local archives we looked at, which is this kind of chatter back and forth between Shanghai municipal government agencies and the um, local offices of sent down youth in rural areas. you know, these are places that really had no particular connection to a city like Shanghai before the Cultural revolution. And in the context of the sent down youth movement, now there's not just the bodies of urban youth parked in the countryside, but there's also an administrative structure that connects them that had never existed before. And so one of the things that evolved is that locals figured out that they now had access to A great deal of material goods produced in Shanghai that they never would have had access to. And I'm not talking about goods that would be for your personal comfort, but um, electric wires, uh, machine parts, tractor wheels, engines, uh, pumps, et cetera, et cetera. So they were able to take advantage of this connection they had and the fact that these urban youth are in the countryside to get city agencies in Shanghai to kind of rally and send a lot of materials. So we found that really interesting and surprising, the extent to which it was all documented, the visits back and forth, the conversations about it, the negotiations about it. And so we thought it was a piece of the economic history of the Cultural Revolution that was important to tell because it also has implications for how one understands the economic reforms and urban-rural relationships. There is a backstory to it. So when we wrote this article, we had so many people read it, and the main comment that they had was, Why aren't you talking about female sent down youth who were raped and sexually abused? That was one of the main things people said. And our response was to say, Well, that's not what this article is about. We're talking about economic relationships, and there are many, we could talk about that in a different article, but it, it was. So stunning, how quickly, if you don't talk about the victimhood of people during that time, the violence, the awful things that happened, then nobody wanted to hear it or read it for that matter. so and we've had the same experience when we have actually um tried to speak about and write about the issue of sexual abuse, which turns out to be far more complicated than a story of um, demonic peasant men raping. Uh, urban youth. It's a much, much more complicated story, but to some extent, certain people don't want to hear that story because it flies in the face of the essential victimhood of urban youth.
3: I, I once uh, gave a paper based on a piece I'd just written on the world 60s. Uh, I gave us at a conference in Beijing in the early zeros, 2005 maybe. And there was a, someone at the conference who worked for the journal Wenhua Zongheng, which is a pretty interesting and important left political, theoretical, social journal in China. And she was very excited about translating it and publishing it there, which I said, you know, go ahead. And so I spent a long time translating it, and then it was unpublishable. It wasn't allowed to be published. And I really couldn't figure out why, but uh, it was it was putting together Western, Third World, and Chinese 60s movements and linking them, you know, with a number of, I thought, common characteristics, uh, common politics, I mean, a sort of new conception of the political and new conceptions of political subjectivity. And, and I think what was the problem was that it was suggesting... It was giving um, some kind of—it was taking the politics of the Cultural Revolution seriously and taking the politics of the Cultural Revolution as having relevance for post-Cultural Revolution times. And that is a difficult thing in China. I I think that one of the things that the denunciation, the thoroughgoing negation of the Cultural Revolution has accomplished in China on the ideological front is a kind of— First of all, as Emily just said, it only gives one sort of space for subjectivity, which is that of victimhood. So it's, you know, you're, the, the truth of the cultural revolution is the suffering that people experienced. But that leaves a number of things unsaid or oblique or unmentionable. Struggle, class struggle, for example, is now a discourse in China that is disallowed and repressed. In fact, it's very difficult. I had a friend in China a couple of years ago who was publishing a piece on the middle class. She was told she couldn't get it published if she used the word class, the Chinese word class, Ji in the title, and she, has to, she had to use stratum, instead. Hmm. I mean, she eventually did get it published using class, but there is, there is, I would say, uh, across the political spectrum, except in some very marginal ultra left uh, pockets of politics and thought in China today. There's a real aversion to class and class struggle and that's a consequence of the Cultural Revolution. So in a certain sense, the politics that it represented and that it was are, are, are is a whole political scene, a whole discursive scene that's been repudiated and rendered still unmentionable and the interesting thing about it is about the cultural evolution is sort of in, in the state discourse is that it needs to be coded as 10 years disaster, but it also needs to be discussed in a way that doesn't implicate the state and state organs. I mean, it, it, you know, sort of, so it's victim, uh, in a certain sense without a clear notion of the victimizer. And, uh, and that makes for a kind of strange thing. I had, A couple of friends of mine made a film that's being circulated a lot. In fact, it's coming to California next fall called Shanghai Youth, which is about, um, it's an eight-hour-long documentary about the Shanghai sent-down youth who went to Xinjiang and have, since the 1980s, been struggling to kind of get full rights uh, in Shanghai itself. And it's a struggle that has gone on for a long time, and they have a particular esprit de corps but what's interesting about the film, what the film reveals, is that although they would, one would imagine, fit very easily into the role of victims of the Cultural Revolution, because they're now plaintiffs for rights in the city of Shanghai, and they're being victimized by the current regime, they have this very ambiguous and very difficult position, and um, and I think. One of the things that the film does is it sort of highlights that the the messy way in which the memories of the cultural evolution and the responsibility for its excesses has been handled, you know, creates a range of conundra in the present.
2: I just, can I? Oh, yeah, oh, go please, please, ahead. Piggyback please, on that, which is that while Chris was talking, I was thinking about, and it goes back to story he told at the beginning about when he visited the factory in Wuhan in 76, was that? So one of the things I was thinking about, particularly in the context well, of the cultural revolution broadly, and also the sent down youth movement is the state. And it seems that when many people talk about the cultural revolution, or when they talk about the sent down youth movement, there's this kind of assumption of a unified, all powerful state and that is in which everything is dictated by Chairman Mao. And at least from the research I've done, you know, you there are so many levels of state power and they are not always on the same page during this period in say the nineteen, the late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies. The state might have said, send all the youth to the countryside local governments might have felt, well, we do have a huge unemployment problem. There was a lot of Red Guard violence. We also have a problem of what would be translated as uh, hoodlums, liomang. Um, so we'll, we'll get rid of all those people. But then they also had to deal with the discontent of a city population that wasn't happy about its youth all being sent to the countryside and local Governments that were not happy about receiving all of these youth. And so you find lots of levels of the state having arguments with each other about this and what to do, how to handle it. And, you know, if you look at how the movement came to an end, what you find actually is that it was levels of the state way below the central government that basically were saying this is a movement that is impossible having urban people live in the countryside is not a viable thing to do. And we're not going to do it anymore. And that was way before the central government said, we're not going to do it anymore. So I guess I just wanted to have us call attention a little bit to when we talk about the state, that it's not the unified, all powerful entity that people always often assume that it is. Absolutely. I mean, I think
1: that that's one that's kind of a um, vertical way of looking at things, these kind of levels of the state. But there's also kind of a, you know, horizontal or geographical way in these kind of regional variations that we see, which is also something that's kind of muted and not talked about in um, conversations about the Cultural Revolution is regional difference, city difference. There's a lot of variation. I wonder if either of you could uh, talk a little bit about that. Um, It's something that's not talked about often, I think.
3: I think that's important. And so, for example, Mo Bo Gao has written about his village uh, during the Cultural Revolution, and his village was not alone in getting many benefits from the Cultural Revolution in terms of schools and you know, the kind of exchange that Emily writes about and talks about. But education was really important, and, med- and medical care, the barefoot doctor program, was very important again, unevenly. Can you
0: explain what the barefoot doctor program? Well, it was is?
3: just a kind of it was a, a a way of training medical workers, and having these workers in the countryside and in rural areas uh, delivering primary care with without a full medical degree, but with enough training, you know, to cover really most of what was uh, most medical issues. And in fact, this this policy of of rural healthcare. Produced better health results than the later privatization period in the nineties and the early zeros, when medical care was effectively withdrawn from, uh, particularly the more remote uh, rural areas. So, and but, but not every village got schools, and not every village got access to health care, and so this was this was quite differential. And I remember I was in when I was traveling in nineteen eighty one. Going to a remote town, small town on the Yangtze River, and asking people there about the Cultural Revolution, uh, whether they'd had it, and they said, "Oh yeah, we had it." And I said, "Well, how, how did you get it? I mean, I mean, there were no Red Guards showing up in this town. I mean, you couldn't even get to the town by road." And they said, "Oh well, we heard it about a ra- uh, we heard about it on the radio, so we did it." And um, and. <laughs> It's wonderful. <laughs> I, I, I talked a little bit about what they did and they, and, and, you know, it turns out of course that attack the enemies in the headquarters question authority, that sort of thing. I mean, there's always going to be kind of structures of antagonism in any, uh, in any place and they're going to be very locally inflected. And so they'll take very different forms in different places. I mean, just up the river in Chongqing, I mean, a couple of hundred miles up there from this village. Chongqing being an arms manufacturer, a lot of arm armament factories, they had really full-on armed warfare in the Cultural Revolution with tanks and cannons and that sort of thing. Shanghai, it was very hot politically, but quite nonviolent uh, in the struggle. So so it's. I think we're only gradually getting the picture of these vast regional differentiations in the Cultural Revolution. I mean, that's only coming out recently and gradually.
0: Have you found that as well in in your research or just travels, Emily?
2: Absolutely. And I would also say, I mean, just to add one other point to that, which is that besides regional difference, I think the notion of the Cultural Revolution as a single entity also is um, a little misleading because as Chris has alluded to in a number of things he said today when he's talking about the earlier couple of years versus the later years I think that you know the the great link up versus the red guard movement versus the sent down youth movement versus cleanse the class enemies movement there's so many pieces not all of which took place in the same way in every part of China but The idea that there is one single cultural revolution is also, I think, um, something that needs to be unpacked.
3: And uh, you know, recent work in China and elsewhere is kind of giving us a different picture of the cultural part of the cultural revolution. That you know, that there was it wasn't as monochromatic culturally as is portrayed. Uh, is widely portrayed, for example. So, so the film Balzac and the Little Chinese Seamstress gives you this idea that these books were these Balzac and Flaubert books were really rare and really frowned upon. When actually there was there was a whole body of Western literature that was circulating not narrowly. Victor Hugo was widely read in the 1960s, mm-hmm. for example. Catcher in the Rye, On the Road. These were fairly widely read. There's research now in China on what are called the gray books, these books that were purportedly for limited distribution but managed to get out that were read and that were very influential on the post-cultural revolution times. And there's, there's a movie that the Chinese rock musician Cui Jian made uh, a few years ago called Lan Se Gu to, The Blue Bones, which is about... Uh, it, it's a story of, it, it's, a, it's a young man's story of his mother who was originally in, in Lin Biao's son's circle. Lin Biao's son was known as being a kind of rock music connoisseur who introduced and kind of popularized rock music in 1966, 67, and 68. And, and that was available to certain levels of red guard types at that time. So um, I think that, you know, there's there's just a lot coming out about the particular character of cultural experience at different points, at different periods during the cultural evolution.
0: And that actually segues really well into one of our final questions, which is you've already recommended or talked about Shanghai Youth and Blue Bones. I don't know if you all have other recommendations for if people thought... Balzac and the Little Chinese Seamstress was interesting or good or if they just want to if there are other pieces of pop culture or film documentaries that are you know enjoyable accessible worth, worth people's time yeah any
1: recommendations would be wonderful that you can think of
3: I will recommend Emily's forthcoming book <laughs> I think that this book on the sent down youth will be really interesting and important and you know kind of paradigm shifting
2: I, I think one of the a really interesting edited book to read it's I'm not talking about a film here I don't agree with everything that is said in the book but it's a collection of pieces by a number of women sent down youth called Some of Us and so it's 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 the memories of of a number of Chinese women who most of whom have come to the US identify very much as feminists, and they're trying to, in their recollections about their lives growing up under Mao, they're trying to think through um, what did it mean to be a woman. So they're very much focused on questions of gender. And it's interesting, Agreed.
1: Yeah. Can I make a recommendation too? Can Please. I just jump in here? <laughs> I was actually wondering if either of you, because we did think about another film that I think we mentioned, um, Eleven Flowers, and I was wondering if either of you have seen it.
3: I haven't. Why don't you tell us about it?
1: So, um, actually, Mel and I saw it at a film festival here in Santa Cruz um, a couple of years ago. And interestingly, there's also another like French-Chinese connection with this film, because it's a French film. And it is about, um, it's it's basically a childhood story, a child during the Cultural Revolution, he and his friends, and there's this kind of event that happens, you know, a person dies. And it's really interesting because it all takes place during the Cultural Revolution. But this this whole kind of tumultuous political backdrop really takes a backseat to their everyday lives. And there's really a lot about, you know, their relationships with their families and their friends and what their everyday life is like for like a young child. And it was really Really interesting and, and, you know, also very kind of beautiful in a way and all very blue cast. Yeah. I don't know if you wanted to. I don't know if you remember that film very well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I I really liked a lot about it, it is it doesn't seem to have a strong political viewpoint on the culture Revolution doesn't seem to be making any points about it was all terrible or no, it was politically it was like this wonderful time to be a child. It's it's uh, the culture Revolution is in some ways almost incidental, which I think is. Fascinating, even of itself, that you would make a movie set during the Cultural Revolution. Make that almost just a just a random place to set a story.
1: There's like one scene with red yeah. guards, and it's just to, it's just not a, even part of like, this. Talked about like
0: that. There's conflict at the local yeah. factory that his father yes, works at, that's but, true. There's but some it's labor. it's a really minor,
1: yeah, detail. So maybe we can end here. It was really wonderful to have both of you. We're we're so honored to have you here. It's really been a great conversation. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks for doing it. Thank you for doing it. In wrapping up, we want to say
0: a few words about our sponsors. We're a new podcast funded generously by the American Councils for International Education Critical Language Scholarship Alumni Development Program, and the Phillips Ambassadors Alumni Award at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill.
1: If you like our podcast, you could really help us out by telling others about the podcast and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at EastAsiaForAll or visit our website, EastAsiaForAll.com, for show notes and more information about the podcast. We're lucky that we don't need funding or donations right now, but we could use your support in getting the word out. Thanks. Thanks.